Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Ever since President Obama took office, a question has shadowed him, one that people inside his administration are keenly aware of, though they don't like to talk about it. Will he end up like Lyndon Johnson with Afghanistan as his Vietnam? Will the war he inherited escalate until it destroys his domestic reforms and, in the end, his presidency? In one sense, it's a strange question because I can't think of two presidents less alike than Barack Obama and Lyndon Johnson, at least in temperament. In his decision-making, his leadership style, his manner of reflection, I think Obama much more closely resembles Johnson's predecessor, John F. Kennedy. Last fall, Obama conducted a 10-week strategy review on the war in Afghanistan. He asked questions over and over. He demanded more information than his advisors could give him. He refused to allow the military to pin him down when General McChrystal's report was leaked calling for as many as 60,000 troops. And in the same way, Kennedy had his advisors review again and again the question of whether to send combat troops to South Vietnam. According to Gordon Goldstein's recent book about McGeorge Bundy, Lessons in Disaster, which is well worth reading for understanding both Vietnam and Afghanistan, Kennedy rejected the advice to send ground troops each time his advisors gave it. In the end, Obama did not reject escalation in Afghanistan, but he didn't give his generals everything they wanted either. And for the first time since September 11th, there's daylight between the commander-in-chief and his top generals. And in a democracy, that should be neither unhealthy nor unusual. Obama also declared in his West Point speech last December that there would be a limit to American involvement in Afghanistan. He announced the beginning of troop withdrawals for July 2011. He was sending certain signals, I think, with that announcement to his domestic constituencies, to his base in the Democratic Party, to Congress, to the military. But in the region where the war is being fought, that announcement had the effect of weakening the president's position. It told Afghans and Pakistanis that America is already looking for the exit. The Syrian president, Hafez al-Assad, once said, America is always short of breath. We don't have the patience that um, is sometimes necessary to understand the complexities of the situations we get ourselves into. But I think Obama was telling us that he was willing to take his chance. He didn't seem to be afflicted with Lyndon Johnson's deep insecurity about his own judgment, which caused LBJ to let his advisors override his own fears about Vietnam in 64, and then to shut out other advisors who contradicted the course he set in 65. Instead, Obama seems to share with Kennedy a pragmatic instinct, a talent for detached and cold-blooded and even opportunistic calculations. Last year, a White House advisor said to me, Afghanistan is both the biggest gamble of Obama's presidency and also tricky. And by tricky, 
I think the advisor meant that it goes against Obama's instincts and judgment to get America more deeply involved in a counterinsurgency war in a pre-modern society halfway across the world. Obama prides himself on knowing the limits of American power. He was a child during the Vietnam War, and he doesn't seem marked by the searing arguments on both sides of that disaster. He doesn't seem to live in fear of charges from the right that he's too soft, which always haunted LBJ and to a lesser extent JFK and almost every Democrat of the generation that preceded Obama. He absorbed Vietnam's lesson about the dangers of American overreach, but he's young and confident enough for that lesson not to take the form of a neurosis. He seems free of Bill Clinton's crippling uncertainty about using American power and also free of George W. Bush's vanity about his own resolve to use it, which is a reaction to his own insecurity. So we're finally beyond the generational psychodrama of the baby boomers, thank God. (laughs) As a candidate and as a president, Obama seems most comfortable talking about transnational problems that don't have strictly American solutions, least of all military solutions, climate change, restricting the spread of nuclear weapons, poverty and underdevelopment. During the campaign, when he talked about negotiating without preconditions with the Islamic Republic of Iran, he took a lot of criticism, including from his Democratic opponent, who since becoming his Secretary of State has stopped criticizing. But he stuck with the position, not because he'd worked out the details of a successful strategy. We're learning that there was much he was not prepared for where Iran is concerned, but because it suited his temperament. It harmonized with his way of seeing the world, which rests fundamentally on a belief in rationality and cooperation. So the war in Afghanistan is not of a piece with the rest of Obama's worldview. It's a holdover from the era that his election was supposed to bring to a close, and yet it could break his presidency. So it should not be surprising that he approaches the war with a certain wariness. I think it's clear that Obama never really wanted this war. He only talks about it when he absolutely has to. Last year, between March and December, he didn't give a single major speech on the war while U.S. troop numbers escalated throughout. And he hardly mentioned it in his State of the Union message earlier this year. I think it got one sentence. Obama never wanted to be a war president like Bush. You can sense that deep down he wants to be rid of this war. Last year, Mort Abramowitz, who's a retired um, official of many administrations and former ambassador to Turkey, committed a gaffe, which someone defined as accidentally telling the truth, uh, when he said to me, Obama, in a fit of absent-mindedness to show he was tough, made Afghanistan his signature issue because he wanted to get out of Iraq, and this is going to be goddamn difficult. Abramowitz later insisted that he had been off the record when he said it, but that's why it was a gaffe, because he had told the truth. So this is, in a way, I think, Obama's tragedy. He inherited the war. At first, he didn't understand the magnitude, the complexity. I think he has come to understand them. And he saw no easy way out of it. 
He welcomed an honest and serious discussion. And he thinks he can still have the visionary foreign policy he always wanted in spite of the war. And yet he also knows, he surely knows, that it will suck so much of the energy and time of his administration and American lives and money. And looked at in this light, I think you can see that his magnificent Nobel speech in Oslo last December was an attempt to reconcile his transformative agenda on the one hand with how much of his presidency has gone into a war that seemed to belong to the previous era. That speech was a powerful and rare presidential statement about the tragedy of human affairs. Usually American presidents don't like to talk about tragedy, but Obama did. Many commentators, including me, thought that they saw the influence of the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr in Obama's speech. And Obama's, one of his speechwriters later confirmed that for me. It was a kind of public airing of an argument Obama is having with himself. And here's a brief quote from that speech to get at the point that I'm trying to make here. Obama said, we must begin by acknowledging the hard truth. We will not eradicate violent conflict in our lifetimes. There will be times when nations acting individually or in concert will find the use of force not only necessary, but morally justified. He then invoked Martin Luther King, who had received the same prize decades earlier. <clears throat> he discussed King's nonviolence and how, in a sense, it had made Obama's career possible. He said there was nothing naive about King and nonviolence. But then he went on to add, I face the world as it is and cannot stand idle in the face of threats to the American people. For make no mistake, evil does exist in the world. A nonviolent movement could not have halted Hitler's armies. Negotiations cannot convince Al-Qaeda's leaders to lay down their arms. To say that force may sometimes be necessary is not a call to cynicism. It is a recognition of history, the imperfections of man, and the limits of reason. So yes, the instruments of war do have a role to play in preserving the peace, and yet this truth must coexist with another, that no matter how justified, war promises human tragedy. The soldier's courage and sacrifice is full of glory, expressing devotion to country, to cause, to comrades in arms, but war itself is never glorious, and we must never trumpet it as such. So part of our challenge is reconciling these two seemingly irreconcilable truths that war is sometimes necessary, and war at some level is an expression of human folly. That was Obama at Oslo. Isn't it amazing to have a president who can speak in such sentences and, and hold such thoughts? As Fitzgerald once said, to hold two opposing thoughts in your head at the same time and continue to function is the definition of a first-rate mind. Obama has a first-rate mind. <laughs> From the beginning, I've been struck, though, by the language of Obama's war strategy. He has deliberately avoided talking about the very things that filled the speeches, the rather, in contrast, simple speeches of his predecessor. Democracy, freedom, elections, the rights of Afghan women. Instead, from the beginning, Obama has put America's war aims in Afghanistan this way, quote, I want the American people to understand that we have a clear and focused goal to disrupt, 
dismantle and defeat al-Qaeda in Pakistan and Afghanistan and to prevent their return to either country in the future. That is the goal that must be achieved. That is a cause that could not be more just. And to the terrorists who oppose us, my message is the same. We will defeat you. <clears throat> so this is tough, hard-headed, realpolitik talk. This talk is designed to discourage any high-flying notions of saving the world or bringing the light of freedom. It's talk that Henry Kissinger or Brent Scowcroft would be comfortable with. In fact, President Obama has said that he admires the foreign policy of the first President Bush, a figure few people would think to associate him with. Obama continually downplays the idea of Afghanistan as a fledgling democracy. And this de-emphasis is part of a larger turn away from the use of moral or moralistic language in Obama's foreign policy. <clears throat> For example, as a journalist, I've developed the habit of noticing how far down a topic appears in a given story. Human rights never appears in what we journalists call the lead of an Obama speech. In his magnificent address to the Muslim world from Cairo last June, another great Obama foreign policy speech, he gave about four of them last year, he didn't mention democracy until the 46th paragraph and human rights until the 48th. It's worth asking why. <clears throat> There's an obvious answer. Because this language was tainted, if not corrupted, if not destroyed during the presidency of his predecessor. And it needed to be locked away in a sterile room for a few years before it could be taken out and used again. <clears throat> in his second inaugural address, Bush told the world, it is the policy of the United States to seek and support the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every nation and culture with the ultimate goal of ending tyranny in our world. America in this young century proclaims liberty throughout all the world and to all the inhabitants thereof. It was a breathtaking statement and it left behind the taste of ashes in the world's mouth. The United States will be paying for the bad company that this language kept for a long time. <clears throat> Obama refuses to hold America up as the beacon of freedom around the world. Instead, he has devoted his first year to reestablishing America's credibility as a cooperative member of the community of enlightened nations. <clears throat> and yet the decision to base the war policy in Afghanistan very narrowly on preventing another 9-11, which is what the justification is, has led to some problems. To be honest about it, it seems like a bit of a stretch. Why are tens of thousands of American troops and thousands of American civilians needed to secure Afghanistan against the Taliban insurgency and reform the Afghan government and economy when the enemy is called Al-Qaeda and happens to be in Pakistan? What do crop yields in Helmand province have to do with Osama bin Laden? Why are we spending tens of billions of dollars on aid to Afghanistan if the point is to destroy a terror network? Why are Marines fighting and dying down in Marja while our troops can't even go where the named enemy actually is, South Waziristan and other tribal areas of Pakistan? And on the other hand, why are we going to start withdrawing next July if what we're really trying to do is rebuild the Afghan state? 
So these are questions that a lot of people, from Andrew Bacevich to Rory Stewart, from George Will to Carl Levin, are asking. These are the Afghan minimalists. They exist on the right and the left. And among them is Vice President Biden. When I interviewed Biden back in 2004, he was complaining <clears throat> that we weren't doing enough nation building in either Iraq or Afghanistan. He was very critical of Bush. He, he wanted Bush to make good on his promise of a new Marshall Plan for Afghanistan. Do you remember that phrase? <clears throat> Biden told me the story of an Afghan girl who back in the winter of 2002 <coughs> stood up in a cold, unheated, austere little classroom with one naked light bulb hanging and made Biden promise that he and America would not abandon her. Biden is now the senior person in government asking why we have to be involved in Afghanistan, why we can't pull out most of our troops and use predator drones and special forces in Pakistan to take out al-Qaeda. Biden, along with a lot of other Americans, has grown disenchanted with Afghanistan, and especially with Hamid Karzai, and with nation building, and with commitments made to Afghan girls in ice-cold classrooms years ago. Last year, Obama heard all these questions. He heard them first in, March, in February and March when he held his first strategy review, and then again in the fall when he held a marathon strategy review that nearly <laughs> destroyed the public's confidence in him as a commander-in-chief because he had disappeared inside the White House for two or three months. But in the end, he rejected the minimalist view. And the reason, put simply, is that this had been Bush's strategy all along. And it had helped revive the Taliban and create the disaster in Afghanistan that Obama was dealing with. Last year, I spoke to a guy named Bruce Rydell, former CIA officer, specialist in Pakistan, and believe it or not, a former member of SDS. Um, yes, there are some SDS-CIA overlaps. <clears throat> Rydell ran the first strategy review in 2009. And he said, with his knowledge of the intelligence on Pakistan, Al-Qaeda does not exist in a vacuum. They're part of a syndicate of terrorist groups. Selective counterterrorism won't get you anywhere because the bad guys don't stay in their lanes. So you can diagram the interconnections between the extremist networks in the mountains of the Hindu Kush. Al-Qaeda, the Afghan Taliban factions, the Pakistani Taliban factions. Uh, last year, a friend of mine, David Rode of the New York Times, spent months in captivity after being kidnapped by um, Afghan Taliban. It was a pretty horrific experience. He wrote a very illuminating series of articles in the New York Times once he managed to escape, which was miraculous. And what the... His portrait of his captivity told me was the interconnections between these three networks were profound and they were all coming to be dominated by a single global jihadist ideology. In other words, even the more local Pakistani Taliban groups under the influence both of al-Qaeda foreigners coming in and of their own commanders um, were absorbing and reflecting more and more, not a, a sort of parochial view of their own interests, but a global view. 
And the fact that it seems as if the Pakistani Taliban is now trying to blow up uh, SUVs in Times Square suggests that David's uh, analysis was on to something. So what we're doing in Afghanistan, to put it in military terms, is we are pursuing counter-terrorist ends by counterinsurgency means. It's like building an entire city in order to create one sniper's lookout. Such a policy is not going to be tenable over the long haul because the public won't stay with it. To the worried politician and the weary voter, there has to be an easier way. The same Morta Bramowitz I quoted earlier last year said to his old friend Richard Holbrook, who is now the special envoy for Afghanistan and Pakistan, there's a long-term problem. It's going to take a lot of money, a lot of effort. And the administration, in order to get the money, has to convey there's a short-term fix. But there is no short-term fix. That's sort of the heart of the contradiction in pursuing counterterrorism ends by counterinsurgency means. There's a kind of a tragic syllogism at work here. You can't disrupt, dismantle, and defeat al-Qaeda without preventing a second Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. And you can't prevent a second Taliban takeover of Afghanistan without a comprehensive political strategy, political strategy for Afghanistan. And you can't find a viable political strategy without trying to reform the Afghan government. So we end up exactly where Obama did not want to go, meddling in the messy realm of another country's internal politics. This is nothing new for us Americans. It's difficult for Americans to fight costly wars without invoking some principle higher and more universal than either national glory or territorial gain or even security. It goes back to the words of the Declaration of Independence, written one year into our first war to justify it before the opinion of mankind, not as one country's revolution, but as the expression of universal rights. It goes back to the middle of our own civil war, when Lincoln consecrated a military cemetery to the same abstract truth, to the proposition that all men are created equal, to a new birth of freedom, to government of the people, by the people, for the people. The point of the Gettysburg Address was to assert that self-government could endure. The implication was it would sometimes take killing and dying for. The war that first challenged America's long-standing aversion to entangling alliances was the Great War. To justify ending America's isolation, Woodrow Wilson took up the same language of Jefferson and Lincoln and essentially extended it to the rest of the world. Here's what he said in April 1917. The world must be made safe for democracy. Its peace must be planted upon the tested foundations of political liberty. We have no selfish ends to serve. We desire no conquest, no dominion. We seek no indemnities for ourselves, no material compensation for the sacrifices we shall freely make. We are but one of the champions of the rights of mankind. We shall be satisfied when those rights have been made as secure as the faith in the freedom of nations can make them. <clears throat> and whatever you think about the relative hypocrisy of those words, what matters in this context is that he felt he had to say them, 
in order to justify the war, and that he meant them. And they sound a bit like one of our own recent presidents, don't they? In the language of his second inaugural and many of the speeches he made on the war in Iraq, George W. Bush at times seemed to be channeling the ghost of Woodrow Wilson. And he also channeled America in the aftermath of World War I, which resembled our own age in its cynicism toward glittering generalities and lofty summons. Wars justified by democracy and the promise of peace that end with neither produce a disillusionment unlike any other. And yet from our historical moment, it's easy to forget that few modern presidents have felt able to enter foreign conflicts without appealing to the idea of democracy and universal rights, without setting out to change the politics of other countries. <clears throat> in his State of the Union message in 1941, the year America entered World War II, Franklin Roosevelt said, the nation takes great satisfaction and much strength from the things which have been done to make its people conscious of their individual stake in the preservation of democratic life in America. Those things have toughened the fiber of our people, have renewed their faith, and strengthened their devotion to the institutions we make ready to protect. He was talking about the Depression and the New Deal, but he went on to connect democracy at home to the global struggle, which he knew the United States would soon have to join. He said, in the future days, which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. And he enumerated them, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. Roosevelt gave a political meaning to the Second World War even before America entered it. By a strange historical paradox, sorry, I, I, I forgot to mention Vietnam here, which is going to play a role later in my talk. <clears throat> in the case of World War II, a necessary war that ended with the utter defeat of a, of a totalitarian enemy, followed by the successful reconstruction of the en enemy's societies, the contradiction between these universal claims and the right to self-determination didn't matter. But in the case of Vietnam, an unnecessary war in which the empire of liberty ran up against age-old Vietnamese nationalism. The contradiction was insurmountable. Today, many Americans wonder why we can't leave Afghanistan's fate to the Afghans, who, after all, have been kicking out invaders for as long as Americans have been talking about universal rights. It's a strange historical paradox that it's the American military that has forced the rest of our government to remind us that wars are, at heart, political. We think of the military as being in the business of simply fighting the wars. But what's happened in the last few years is that because it's been on the receiving end of so much bloodshed and loss, the military has discovered that human beings are at the heart of war. They're the central elements of war. In Iraq, the US Army went in with shock and awe, thinking that technology and firepower could remove a regime and leave behind a stable country. And over the months that followed, young NCOs and officers in the Sunni Triangle realized not only were they wrong about the ability of their firepower and their technology, but that they didn't understand the first thing about the society that they were fighting in. And one of them 
this is a true story, called the Pentagon from Samara and said, do you guys have an anthropologist? Do you, is there some social scientist back there who can help us because we don't know what kind of society we're dealing with here? And he, he, he had come to the realization that it was the nature of Iraq and the thoughts and desires and history and culture of the Iraqi people that he was really in the middle of a conflict with. He needed to understand it better. And this led to the rediscovery on the part of our military of counterinsurgency, which essentially says war is not about killing and capturing the enemy. It's about winning the population. Um, this began around 2005 in Iraq, and by the time I went to Afghanistan last year, it had become absolute doctrine. It's been codified in a field manual written mainly by David Petraeus, and it's been passed on to every young captain and lieutenant and sergeant that you'll meet in Afghanistan. They talk as if they were development workers and diplomats uh, as much as soldiers. Last year, I was in a province called Wardok, which is southwest of Kabul, and a battalion commander named Kimo Gallahu said to me, 30 years of war and seven years of unfilled promises. For the first time, it's taken seven years, we're doing counterinsurgency here. What he meant was we figured out what we have to do is protect the population, separate them from the enemy, connect them to their own government. That's the formula. The problem is it's sort of become a formula. Um, you hear the talk of clear, hold, and build. And it's a nice phrase, but I find that the more I hear it, the less I think we really know what it means, let alone how to do it. Last, uh, a couple months ago, General McChrystal talked about behind the Marines in, in Marja would be government in a box. Anyone catch that phrase from General McChrystal? That phrase set off a little alarm bell in my head because government does not come in a box. It's not an MRE. You, know, you, can't, you can't add water to it and expect it to, to be ready to eat. Government grows out of the deep roots of a society. And although our soldiers have learned the hard way um, what these wars are about, I don't think that they really have the training and the, the, the time, uh, because they're only there for nine months or a year, to really understand what it means. Um, COIN, as they call counterinsurgency, is in danger of becoming just as much an obstacle to our thinking about the war as Rumsfeld's military transformation, high-tech information-based warfare. And there are some internal skeptics. For example, Richard Holbrook's military advisor, a major general named Bert Field, <clears throat> said to me last year in Afghanistan, he's an Air Force major general, so we're going to keep the Taliban off your back connect you to your government, and that's counterinsurgency. But it's premised on the fact that the government wants to be able to provide those key services. What if the premise is false? In other words, what if there really is no government that wants to provide and for and secure the people? And what if the people don't want to be provided for and secured by this government? What if after eight years, Afghans no longer want either NATO forces or their own government to be in their lives because... <laughs> There have been too many bad experiences. This is a question that General McChrystal, I don't think, has asked himself. For example, a NATO survey recently showed that 
in 121 strategically critical districts in Afghanistan, the Afghan government is supported in only 24% of them. That's a pretty bad place to be after eight years of war. In a sense, we're starting from scratch. Vietnam is in the title of my talk, and I want to talk a bit about ways in which Afghanistan is and is not like it. No two wars are the same. As, as Obama himself said, you never step in the same river twice. But there are some similarities that are so palpable that they simply can't be escaped. I spent a couple of weeks traveling with Richard Holbrook and his team in Afghanistan and Pakistan last year. Holbrook's career began in Vietnam. He spent seven years working on that war. And he would tell me, don't talk about Vietnam. This isn't Vietnam in one minute. And the next minute, he'd be telling me, this reminds me exactly of Vietnam. He couldn't escape it. I mean, think about some of the obvious similarities. There's a rural insurgency. There's a, a corrupt and, to say the least, unreliable partner in the government that we're supporting. <clears throat> There's a sanctuary for the enemy. In Vietnam, it was across the border in Cambodia North Vietnam. In Afghanistan, it's across the border in Pakistan. But I think the key similarity is something that Ambassador Tim Carney, who was at the embassy in Kabul and who also started his career in Vietnam, a lot of these guys started in Vietnam, told me when I met him in Kabul. He said, we get into relationships that give the leaders of countries the strength of their weakness. We can collapse the whole thing, but that's all we can do. What other leverage do we have? We can't get them to do what we want if they don't want to do it too. And that is sort of the heart of the problem in Afghanistan and I think the, the most important way in which it resembles Vietnam. There are other ways it doesn't, and maybe we can talk about those when uh, I take some questions. I think all of these problems that I'm outlining here have led to a deep confusion in our policy. This confusion, I think, comes from, at its core, a confusion about the ends and the means that I discussed earlier, about what we say we're doing and what we're actually doing in Afghanistan. The administration cannot answer the most basic questions. What does the end state look like? What will it take in terms of resources, Afghan and American? Part of the problem is something that comes up over and over in America's wars, which is what they call interagency competition, meaning different parts of the government that don't work well together and sometimes hate each other. Now, curiously, the main interagency fight that really sabotaged the war in Iraq, which was between the State Department and the Defense Department, is not the problem in this war. By all accounts, Secretary Clinton and Secretary Gates get along very well and see it the same way. The problem is more, I think, between the White House and the rest of the administration. And that's because this is a very White House-centric foreign policy. I've never seen an administration, and more even than the Bush administration, where the president and a few advisors tried to control everything from a very narrow circle in the White House which means that the rest of the government, which is this huge apparatus, especially when you're in, in a war as complex as this, um, is constantly being pulled back. It happened to Holbrook last year when I was with him. 
I saw how every time he seemed to get out a little bit ahead of where the White House wanted him to be, they pulled him back. Um, in Kabul, there's also a, a problem, which is a, a deep disagreement between our ambassador, Carl Eikenberry, and our commander, Stanley McChrystal. They disagree about troop numbers. Eikenberry wrote a cable back to Washington saying more troops is not going to do it because it's, we have an unreliable partner in the government. While McChrystal was asking for tens of thousands more troops, they disagree about whether we should be arming Afghan militias. Um, so these are parts of the confusion in our policy that are kind of at the operational level, but that are very important. I think another key part of the problem is how personalized this war has become in the person of Hamid Karzai. Um, I sat through a lunch that he and Holbrook had in Kabul at the presidential palace, and it was really enlightening to watch Holbrook sort of in his relentless way drilling into Karzai saying, what about corruption? What about bringing government services into Helmand province behind our Marines? What about this? What about that? Karzai was talking a completely different language as if he was speaking to be overheard by a large crowd. It was as if he wasn't really speaking to Holbrook. There was something theatrical. I would, I would even say something slightly crazy about the way Karzai conducted himself in that lunch. You, sometimes you pick up little signs from those small details. Last week, Karzai was in Washington, and our policy takes these wild swings between coddling him and confronting him. Holbrook was confronting him. It led to a blow-up after the elections last August. Obama confronted him when he visited Kabul in March. None of that worked. Karzai has this way of threatening to blow himself up and take us with him whenever this happens. We are tethered to his instability. And so last week in Washington, Karzai uh, had the red carpet treatment. Basically, we've decided if we just treat him um, with a fawning respect, somehow he'll start doing the things we want him to do, which I think is just as unlikely as that he'll do them when we shout at him. Um, but this is a, a symptom of a, a real problem with a war policy that depends on essentially the mood swings of one man isolated in the labyrinth of the presidential palace in Kabul. The problem goes beyond one man, though. The, the, the larger problem is with the Afghan state, which is both highly centralized. Karzai makes thousands of appointments. District governors, like the mayor of Santa Barbara, is appointed by the president of Afghanistan. At that level of bureaucracy, Karzai controls patronage, and he is doing everything in his power to keep control over it. So it's highly centralized, but it doesn't have functioning institutions. So what you end up with is a system in which everything flows from the top and depends upon the patronage of the man at the top, rather than on the, the strength of the institutions. And our own policies are reinforcing this, our aid policy especially. <clears throat> we talk often about building up the capacity of the Afghan government, but just 10% of the $50 billion of U.S. aid so far in the war has gone through the Afghan government. The rest mostly goes directly from military commanders to um, local contractors and, and local partners. And this is what some call the militarization of our aid the Obama administration wants to increase it to 40% of aid and has committed $20 billion more dollars. Uh, 
But of our aid, 56% comes through the Department of Defense. We simply don't have any longer a State Department or a USAID that are capable of um, dispersing aid on this scale. And in fact, in that way, there's been a deterioration since Vietnam. Um, in the last couple of decades, we've essentially allowed the Department of Defense to take over large areas of foreign policy that used to belong to the civilian agencies. <laughs> the other reason why we're filtering it through mil the military is we want results quickly, and it's the military that's on the ground able to get money out quickly into quick impact uh, programs, but those have the effect of undermining the local and national governments and don't create real long-term development or stability. They're more about our desire to show the Afghans that we're, we care about them than about a real effort to build up the institutions of the Afghan government. We're impatient. America is short of breath, and this is an eternal dilemma. <clears throat> And the limitations aren't just on the Afghan side. They're on our side as well. We're now in the middle of what's called a civilian surge. Hundreds and hundreds of American civilians in agriculture, justice, uh, USAID, the State Department, are being trained and sent to Afghanistan. Um, and the idea is for them to be out in the provinces working with local counterparts. People have asked, are there really going to be enough of them? My question is not are there going to be enough of them, but are there going to be too many? Do they really know what they're doing? Do they have the expertise to be useful? Are they going to stay long enough to be useful? We now have these very short tours where as soon as you begin to figure your way around a very complex foreign society, you're on your way back home. I'm going to end by talking a bit about Pakistan. You can't talk about the war in Afghanistan without talking about its behemoth neighbor to the east, um, which is so intertwined in Af Afghanistan's problems and has been for a long time. Surprisingly to me, Pakistan has been, of the two, the relative success story over the past year. Now, why do I say that? Because <clears throat> its own problem of extremism grew so severe that the Pakistani government, which, as we all know, for decades has played a double game by being friends with the United States while creating its own little Frankenstein extremist groups in order to counter India, Pakistan realized it had a problem with its little monsters and began to go after them. First in the Swat Valley, where the Pakistani Taliban had pretty much pushed out all local government and instituted a reign of terror, and then even more importantly and recently in South Waziristan. And these are, I think, really important turns in Pakistani thinking. It doesn't mean that they're going to give up their Frankenstein strategy. They still think that India is their biggest problem, and they still think that Afghanistan is a necessary buffer to Indian advances. They're using Afghanistan the same way the British use it, as part of a, uh, a great game. <clears throat> um, and in Pakistan, there is never a single clear strategy. You're never quite told what's really happening. Ahmed Rashid, who's one of the the best journalist in Pakistan said to me when I was visiting him in Lahore, in Pakistan, it's all gray. Everybody is lying to you. Um, that was another gaffe. Um, <laughs> as in Afghanistan, the problem in Pakistan is not simply that there are extremists. The problem is a deep social crisis. Just a couple of figures. There is less than 50% adult literacy 
in Pakistan. In the tribal areas where the militants have their bases, for women, literacy is 3%. The military consumes more than half the country's budget. Um, There's vast disenfranchisement of young people, of poor people. There is a tiny elite that controls politics, controls the economy. It's a feudal society, essentially. And sometimes when you're there, you think if this were Russia, this would be about the year 1910. Um, There's a wonderful collection of short stories by a a new Pakistani writer named Daniel Muenuddin called In Other Rooms, Other Wonders. He's a landlord in Punjab province, and he writes about the problems with the workers on his estate. And you read those stories and you think, this is Chekhov. (laughs) And again, the year is about 1900. Um, So as in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, the problem of extremism and violence and terrorism is inseparable from a, in Pakistan at least, a deep social crisis um, that until now the Pakistani state seems unable to do anything about. Um, But I also think that the idea that Pakistan controls everything that happens in Afghanistan, which is a a rather paranoid um, feeling that Afghans, I think, sometimes legitimately have, is less and less true because the, the Taliban itself, the Afghan Taliban, which has a sanctuary in Pakistan and which the Pakistanis until now have refused to go after, the Taliban itself is more and more a diffuse, fragmented, decentralized um, insurgency. Three-quarters of Taliban fight within five miles of their homes. That's how local it is. That's how much it's somebody who gets pissed off at a local policeman or government official or American and picks up a gun and is paid to do so. And if that's how dispersed and local it is, it's hard to know exactly how much control can be exercised from Islamabad. I think Pakistan is going to be the key to any resolution that this problem is going to have. If there's going to be an end, it will not be on the battlefield. It's going to be through peace negotiations. And Pakistan is going to play an essential role because only when Pakistan feels that its own security concerns have been addressed, that somehow the world has given it a guarantee against India, against its other bogeymen, will Pakistan cease supporting uh, the Afghan Taliban and force the Afghan Taliban to negotiate uh, a settlement. Right now, there's a lot of talk about negotiations. There's a lot of little things going on. My colleague at the New Yorker, Steve Cole, has a really good article in this week's New Yorker about that. But really nothing solid and substantial is happening. Um, American soldiers can't help wanting to replicate the surge and the Sunni awakening in Iraq and Afghanistan. There is no way it can be replicated in Afghanistan. That society is too fragmented, too Uh, autonomous. The tribal authorities have been broken down by years of war. Um, We cannot convert thousands and thousands of Afghans to our side the way we did in Iraq. Um, It's a valley by valley and village by village war. And so any kind of settlement is going to be ground up and extremely painstaking. 
Um, there will be nothing like our peace talks with the North Vietnamese. The Taliban have no address. They have no capital. Uh, Steve went to talk to an ex-Taliban who's now a member of parliament in Kabul named Abdul Salam Rockety because he was so good with rockets. <clears throat> and Mr. Rockety told Steve the subject of the peace talks literally gave him a headache. He said, the Taliban have become students of Pakistan's two-faced strategy. Some of them talk, some of them fight. Karzai has no one message to them. He has hundreds of messages. Karzai is not doing realistic work for peace. He's just receiving checks from the international community and sending bills to them. If the Americans stay, the Taliban will fight. If the Americans leave, the internal fighting will begin. So the talks will only happen when both sides want them to happen. And right now, neither side wants to talk. The Taliban, because they think they're winning. The Americans, because we think we're losing. I wish I could offer you a simple once and for all solution to this tragedy, but then it wouldn't be a tragedy. Thank you. What is the United States going to do that the British and the Russians and others have mm -hmm. failed to do? Yeah, that's a question that um, I think that Joe Biden has asked. Well, in a way, it's not quite a fair question because if public opinion in Afghanistan can be measured at all, for a long time, public opinion in Afghanistan did not say, leave our soil. And the reason is, after 30 years of their own wars and wars with the Russians, the Afghans wanted the world's help, including the world's troops. In fact, I think for years, although... Uh, we made ourselves very unwelcome with a lot of individual actions. Afghans wanted more foreign troops, not less, which sounds perverse to us. Who would want more foreign troops? Well, if you know you don't have your own army, if you know your own police are corrupt, and if you know that the Taliban have already shown you what their rule means, then maybe that's the best of a bad set of choices. I think what's happened now is after eight, nine years that tolerance for foreign occupation, which was always a pretty thin margin, has worn out, at least in the South. And let's remember, we're really talking about one part of Afghanistan here. We're talking about one ethnic group. The Taliban are Pashtun. There are no Tajik Taliban. There are no Uzbek Taliban. So as Mr. Rockety told Steve Call, if the Americans leave, the internal fighting will begin again. There will be another Afghan civil war. Afghans dread that prospect. The civil war of the 90s was in many ways worse than the Soviet occupation and the memories of a lot of Afghans. So they're also stuck with a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. So I don't think it's quite so simple as we're living with the same fantasies of control and the Afghans are showing that they've always been the same cantankerous people who kick out foreign invaders. I think in this situation, after those years of war, it's a, it's a little bit different in the minds of both the foreigners and the Afghans. But uh, they've always been at war. They were at war before the Russians came in, which is one of the reasons the Russians did come in. They haven't always been at war. I was just having dinner with a woman who traveled through Afghanistan in the 50s. She traveled to the Khyber Pass, which is now one of the most dangerous places on earth. She traveled from um, Mazari Sharif to Bamiyan. I mean, 
It's, it's too simple to see Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires or you know, well, always at war, tribal society, because Afghans, like all people, have multiple identities and their history But is my parents changeable. were there in the 30s and 40s, and yes, they could travel in the Khyber Pass, but yes, they weren't at war, yes, they were growing opium, yes, there was continual conflict. Winston Churchill was in the Swat Valley shooting at people. Uh, you know, it's just something right. that always goes on with the Pathans. Well, That's what they do. They fight. I think that, I, I want to get to the next yes. question, but I think that what you and I are showing is that there's a, a split in, in a way between European and American views. And we may well be the naive universalists. I think Europeans are likelier to be the cultural determinists who think that people are the way they are and they're always the same. Obviously, both of those have certain flaws in them, but it's an interesting contrast. I don't think I've read in uh, the New Yorker or Time or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal uh, a good definition of the word Taliban and the word Al-Qaeda. Words. I think Al-Qaeda is easier to define because they, um, they define themselves. I mean, it's a, it's a hierarchical organization with uh, affiliates all over the world who claim to be the franchise of Al-Qaeda in Morocco, Iraq, whatever, but they're essentially identifying themselves with an ideology of global jihad and with the leadership of, of that organization, which is now in those mountains. Taliban is much harder to define. You're absolutely right. I met American officers who don't use the word because they think it's, it oversimplifies who they're fighting against, and it, in a sense, encourages them to think of them as all undifferentiated enemies when, in fact, people are fighting for all kinds of different reasons, and some are eminently convertible, if only you could give them a job. Uh, whereas there are other Taliban, call them that, who are much more ideological. They're in the, the Pakistani city of Quetta. They have an organization called the Quetta Shura, which is essentially the high command of, of the Taliban. But the word itself comes from them. It comes from the word for students. It, it, the original Taliban were madrasa students who went to fight in the jihad against the Soviets, went back to study and to work, and then returned as a fighting force in the 90s in order to stop the civil war and the chaos that was sweeping through Afghanistan after the Soviets left. So that's the history of the word and how it came to be associated with the regime that ruled Afghanistan in the late 90s. But you're absolutely right. Um, Richard Holbrook has said, we don't really know exactly who the Taliban are, and I think that um, I'm reading the, bi- the autobiography right now of, of a former Taliban leader, Mullah Abdul Zaif, who was their uh, ambassador to Pakistan. You might remember him. He gave a lot of interviews after 9-11. He was the, the public face of the Taliban. I highly recommend this book. It gives you a lot of insight into the thinking. Uh, of the Taliban. I'm wondering how much credence you put upon General Musharraf's uh, contention uh, that uh, the Israel-Palestine situation is one of the driving forces uh, behind the whole Muslim uh, hatred (laughs) and resistance uh, to what the Western world Mm -hmm. is trying to do to them. How do you deal with that? It's obviously a, a cause. Uh, it's, it's an exacerbating cause. I don't think it's the root cause. And I would point you to another book, this by another New Yorker writer, Lawrence Wright, The, Le- the Looming Tower, which is essentially a history of al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda had nothing to do with the Israel-Palestine conflict until very recently. Its origins 
were much more in an ideological uh, antipathy toward the West and toward modernity. Israel was not the the, the main representative of that. Um, and it, so you think this yeah. is not a big factor then? I think it becomes a factor when young men who are already predisposed to listen to because there's no other authority figure, no other credible adult in their town in the tribal areas of Pakistan, and there's no job, and there's no government, and there's no school, who do they look up to? They look up to the guy, the local commander with a Kalashnikov. It reminds me a lot of similar situations in West Africa when young men and boys went to war because there was nothing else for them to do. I think that that is part of what's creating so much um, violence in, in those areas. It, it is a problem of lack of government and development, but once they're open to those views, they see the same f- footage on Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya from uh, Israel and Palestine that the rest of the world sees, and they see it over and over again, and it becomes inflammatory. So absolutely, um, the, the Israeli occupation of the, of the West Bank um, has that effect. I just don't think it's at the heart of the matter. No, of course, it's not as simple as just uh, Palestine and Israel, but what about the guy who just tried to bomb Times Square, okay, and then you read about him, and you... Yeah, right. What we found out is he, he had a foreclosure, you know? <laughs> you know, if, if every American... <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, but gradually he became why, why, why didn't all these, the other Americans who got foreclosed on turn to, to, to terrorism? <laughs> I mean, it's... It is very hard to say this is the reason. The jihadis themselves will give you a reason. It's because of Iraq. It's because of Palestine. It's because I lost my house, whatever the case. It's because I was mistreated in an airport. But it's much too difficult to be pushed to that level of violence for there to be one simple cause like that. How would you explain it, though? If that's not Without it. being simplistic? Uh, no, no, it can't be. <laughs> In the time we have left? It can't be one thing, but there's an ideological uh, I think it is a deep, it is a deep unease with the modern world and with the confusion of identity that the modern world brings and a turn toward a simple, single identity. In this case, the identity is religious. Um, that brings a sense of belonging and comfort and purpose to people who are in the middle of all this flux and all this disinheritance and have lost their sense of, of an identity. That's okay, my, best, my best take. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.